Welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with me, your host Hattie Butterworth. I'm a cellist and writer in my final year at the Royal College of Music in London, and I think we need a new way of talking. I've spent many, many years feeling in the dark about issues in the classical music profession. So often it can feel like you're the only person struggling with anxiety, depression, career doubts, money, injuries, and so much more. Who do we go to when we feel we've had enough, for whatever reason? Join me and guests as we end the stigma with honest conversations about the things musicians don't talk about. Hello everyone, how are you all? Welcome back. I just wanted to say before we start the interview with Frank that I've been so overwhelmed by the lovely messages I've received from so many different people. I wasn't expecting as many new people to follow us on Instagram and share your stories with me. So thank you for that. It's been really uplifting to hear how many of you think that this is a good idea. And please keep sharing your stories with me and ideas. Let's keep this going. In this episode, I interview the pianist and composer Frank Horvat. such a fascinating conversation with Frank. We talked about so many things from his depression and the ways he's learned to manage it over the years to what it means to be a musician with a mental health problem today and in the past and the ways in which we can open up and manage our symptoms. He also talks about the fascinating ways in which he's managed to open up to his students which I find very inspiring and talking to them about his condition as if it were a health problem, like any other health problem. We also talk about his work as an activist in the arts and lobbying for human rights and environmental action through music making. He has undertaken many wonderful projects in the past. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please do follow us on Instagram at TMDTA podcast. And without further ado, let's get on to the interview with Frank. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. It's so wonderful to have you as the first guest on the podcast. Reading your blog has been such a fascinating process. I found myself feeling just so reassured by your honesty, which is just something for some reason is quite hard to come by, um, and especially about your struggles with mental health. And I just wanted to say that, do you realise I searched for quite a long time um, trying to find an article online in which a classical musician sort of talked openly about mental health? And I mean, in the first sort of three or four pages of Google, you were the only person I could find, um, which was quite shocking to me. I don't know whether you knew that. Well, you know, I in the past couple of years, um, I have been uh, very fortunate to have you know, people such as yourself reach out to me and tell me similar stories. So, you know, I feel honored and privileged, but also at the same time, uh, slightly concerned that more of our, our colleagues aren't talking more openly about this, because obviously, we know from a lot of um, research and data that 
there's a lot of people out there that, especially in our in our world of classical music, that are uh, very much struggling these issues, like like many other facets of society. Um, I mean, I want to talk more about mental health in a moment, but I just thought maybe you could explain to everyone at the start a bit about yourself and what you do at the moment. Sure. Yeah, I'm um, I'm a composer, pianist, and music educator based here in Toronto. Canada and I'm in my mid 40s right now and uh, this is something that basically I've I've been a musician since the age of five you know either studying or professionally and in those capacities for many years uh, I've used music my my creative musical voice as a as an outlet to share things that are very important to me uh, and that I feel passionate about be it issues around human rights or environmentalism. Up until just a few years ago, I was very hesitant to talk, A, talk about openly and honestly about my my mental health challenges and and B, definitely not using my music as a platform to to share that. But thankfully, I've, I've sort of feel like I've I've come a full way in uh, in a path to managing my depression and because of many years of hard work on it and focus on it now I feel like in the last few years really 2017 specifically is when when I when I finally sort of took the plunge so to speak yeah. creatively and, and and allowed the music to reflect that and then in turn because the music was out there I started talking talking more openly or publicly about it so it's it's such a important thing I think because I think a lot of people might start to feel similar ways at a very young age I mean for me it was the start of my undergrad when I was about 18 and yes I I heard you know a few people in their 40s talking about it but it felt like for everyone around me all the musicians around me we can't talk about it it has to be something that is kept inside but I just was wondering whether you could talk about your personal experience with your mental health and when did you notice that you first had a problem oh that's a that's a challenging question to answer because of the fact that you live in denial for so many years, yeah. right? And you live in denial and you sort of have to try to go back and figure out, well, was there sort of specific moments? I don't think so. I don't think it's very dramatic. I feel for myself personally, it was sort of festering for many years. I really think that it probably started in my teenage years um, when life became very demanding. I mean, life for any teenager is is very demanding, but I think for musicians like us who are practicing hours on end, taking lessons, um, going to school at the same time for for people that might have, you know, uh, financial constraints, um, you know, maybe having a part-time job or even trying to pay pay for things these these are all very time demanding things in the competitive world we live in. I think I started to put a lot of weight on myself, emotional and mental weight. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because I, I grew up in a, 
in a very loving household, very, very supportive parents to this day. My my parents are my number one fans and I love them dearly. Uh, so it wasn't like I was getting pressure from other people, although we do live in a classical music world where sometimes, you know, there can be a lot of pressure coming from families and parents and stuff like that. But but for me, it was very much always on myself. I'm, I am my greatest critic, you know, to this day. It can be very, very hard on yourself. And there's nothing wrong with being constructive with yourself, but you have to walk a fine line and, and find balance. So, um, and in those early years, there was no balance. It was all hyper manic, just focused on, okay, I achieved something, but that's not good enough because I still have to get to the next level, the next level, the next level. A human being can only take so much of that before you start to see cracks. Um, it's a very relatable place you come from, I think, because for me as well, I mean, I just had such a source of shame coming from my mental health problems because my family was so supportive and no one in my family had really talked about it before, but everyone was just, it was like a, such a supportive unit that I felt like an outlier and like I shouldn't be struggling and I shouldn't be talking about it because it wasn't something that was part of me. It was an alien alien kind of construct. I just was wondering sort of if you could talk about the things you turn to to manage your depression and what did the recovery process look like for you? So for me, the number one important step that I took to recovery was admitting to myself that I have an issue, I have a condition, and that it's treatable. And uh, that was that was the hardest. That was absolutely the hardest. It wasn't to talk to, to open up either to my loved ones or to a therapist or even publicly. I actually find all of that stuff, uh, since I took that crucial first step to be the the easiest, um, very easy uh, compared to just admitting it to myself. Even though my loved ones were encouraging me to seek help because they could see something is wrong, I would just not listen. And it took many, many years. It was maybe, you know, until I was well into my uh, 30s, you know, that I, I sort of figured it out that this is not the right way to live and that I deserve to be to be happy and I deserve to be fulfilled despite whatever type of world as a musician I live in, whether I have ups or downs or successes or failures or, or whatever, or rejection or promotion, it, it didn't matter. So once I did that, then it was, I was home free. It was almost, even though there was still a long road ahead because that was sort of like the turning point. And then I, I worked with a, a psychotherapist for for quite a long time and found that whole experience to be quite valuable. And then I also did quite a bit of work uh, on myself uh, physically, making sure that I was physically healthy. And and it's fascinating because now we we live in a world where the medical profession is is studying the links between me- um, mental and physical health and. Back then, you know, uh, there was, I didn't know anything about this, but but I just knew that if I was outside, if I was going for a walk or going for a run or spending time in green space away from music, um, 
with no earbuds in my ear, not, not listening to anything and just experiencing and enjoying nature, that would be a huge thing. And then I also discovered meditation. Meditation has been a has been a, an important practice that I've discovered only in the last three or four years. Um, and I've added that into my, my sort of my daily life routine and being a person who's always thinking, you know, just like thinking about music, thinking about melodies going through my head, composer, it's like, you know, you have to calm the mind and the mind has to take a break. And so this was my ability to do that and, uh, and diet. Diet's been absolutely huge. Changing my diet in the last 15, 20 years um, has, has really made a difference. When I, uh, there's, there's definitely a correlation. Uh, the odd time I eat bad food, there's a reason why I feel depressed. So it's, I think we, our body is a machine and, and it's all, everything we put in or take out is all interrelated. So thinking of everything as a whole and interconnected and, um, and thinking of it holistically that way. Um, I'm also just wondering if you could explain to people a bit about what your depression feels like. I mean, it's not something that's easy to put into words, I know. And I know you've done amazing things with putting it into music. But I just wondered if, if you could describe it, um, how you would describe it. I guess the first thing I would describe it as, uh, if I have to pick one word, is emptiness. There's just this awful, awful feeling of no feeling. You know, there's been a lot of surveys done. I don't know if you've heard of this survey that actually came out of the UK maybe a few years ago, comparing different professions and which ones were most prone to um, to depression. And, and unfortunately, our our way of life is the one that we reported the most. And and I often wonder that what what makes us so prone to this, uh, you know, as a community. And I think that because we're in the business of feeling all the time, you know, mm. you know, as musicians, we, you know, that's, that's what we do. We need to, we need to feel, we need to evoke feeling. We need others to feel. And I think depression is, is maybe a manic way of sort of like going the polar opposite and it goes too far the deep end because we're always working so hard to to emote and of course we could have trauma anybody any individual person can have specific traumas or scarring things in their life that happen that can just trigger it randomly but i think sometimes i'm on i'm on such an incredible high and adrenaline of putting out an album or getting feedback from people about it or performing a concert and then and you just crash and you you just can't feel anything and you're mm. crawling to try to get to this happy medium you know what i mean of where you just you're not anywhere on the pendulum it's sort of just right down the middle and and for me that's always the been the big challenge and even sometimes when Things are going great, you know. I just my body, but can't help but just crash the other way. And it has been. I've I've gone through periods where I just can't. I can't get out of it. 
for weeks, you know, I, I've been stuck there. Uh, thankfully, the, the length of these periods in which I am in a, peri- in a state of emptiness, it doesn't happen very often anymore. But, but when I, I am able to get out of it far quicker, but that's what it feels like. And when it was really bad at its apex, it was, it was literally weeks, weeks that I just couldn't crawl out. And then the more you want to get out of it, the more you try to encourage yourself, come on, you can do this. Then of course there's the pressure and also uh, putting, trying to put a brave face on it. That puts extra strain on the whole thing. Perhaps you're trying to have a big smile on your face or perhaps uh, in my, my position as a music educator, working with a whole bunch of students on a particular day, well, you don't want them to know about this. You don't want them to see this. So you have to pretend to be something you're not. And the more you're pretending to, to be something you're not or what your true self is emotionally at that given moment, of course, is further trauma to your system. So it's sort of, it can be very tough that way. I think we have those added layers where it's not just the issue itself of being down, but then it's the pressure you put on yourself to get out of it. And also the, sometimes the need to just turn it off. That's not healthy, but we don't, as musicians, we often don't have that luxury. We have to put it aside for a second and then we'll get back to this depression thing later, which of course is not, is not right. Um, I mean, I definitely have been in situations where I know I have a stressful period of concerts or performances and my mental health is feeling, you know, fragile. And just the idea that I'm going to have to pretend to one audience after another or one group of beautiful people I meet organising the concert after another that I'm fine and that I'm that I'm settled, That that is for me quite a triggering situation and it makes it even more even more difficult to accept the situation you're in and accept your mental health problem when every situation you meet you also feel this absolute shame for not being your true self do you do you feel do you feel in those kind of situations like uh, you can't control your feeling of vulnerability yeah definitely yeah that's that's a big thing for me too mm. and the magic the magic on my road to managing all this mm is been to take vulnerability as a as a fear it's a fear mechanism that it can be and i've tried to turn it around that vulnerability is actually something that i use to my advantage to be in front of an audience and not just yes you need to be confident as a performer to be in front of an audience but as a true artist uh, there's also something to be said about vulnerability as a as a good thing and trying to balance that between the confidence of doing the technique that's required to execute the performance but but also that so for me i think use writing music about mental health and then performing that music and talking about it like we are today this is all wonderful therapy for me and that's why what you're doing your podcast is a fantastic endeavor you know, because hopefully people will listen to this and then it will motivate them to talk themselves like you and I are talking right yeah. now. I think that's the huge thing. You I, know? I'm, I'm so with you on that. And it just reminded me um, as well of a po- uh, not a podcast, a blog post that you wrote, which I think is probably the most 
poignant moment of my week almost was when you talked about your 10 year old student you had who wanted to come to your concert um, that was based on your piano pieces written about your depression and their mum spoke to you and said is this you know is this going to be a suitable concert for my son and and you just you just talked in such an amazing way about why it's important to talk to young people about it as if it were just another illness um, because this is something and especially in classical music we, it's very difficult to be vulnerable it's very difficult to say to people that look up to us yes I'm also struggling I you know I'm not even though I'm on stage that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a totally secure person all the time and I've just been thinking about that blog an awful lot and whether you ever thought that opening up like the way you did would damage your career or damage your reputation with children. Has that ever crossed your mind or something you've dealt with? Oh, yes, absolutely. I've been teaching piano and music for many years, going concurrent to my my performing and composing life. And, you know, as an independent freelance musician, we need to earn a living to uh, to pay bills and so forth. And teaching is a very important aspect of my life. And it's something that I, I take a lot of pride in is being the best teacher I can be to my students. And so, you know, one of the things about teaching is, is that, I, which is very different than performing, is that performing, it's technically, it's all about me, the performer or the composer. But teaching is the complete opposite. You as a performer composer have to completely shut that off and and put everything on the student, right? And and making sure that they're comfortable, they're mm-hmm. motivated, they're they're organized. So when the mother of that student you talk about told me, yes, we'd like to come to the concert, gosh, that was one of the one of the hardest sort of moments, spur of the moment, things that have ever happened in my in my career, because it was like, I had to explain to her what the concert was going to be about. And I did the concert, the child attended, I think it was, he might have been about 10 or 11 at that point. And I knew he was in the audience. There was many people in the audience, uh, you know, from various walks of my life or various members of the public. But but knowing that he was in the audience was was very challenging. And it sort of stuck in the back of my mind as I ta- performed the pieces, the my compositions, and talked in between the pieces about that. Even though I was talking to the audience as a general, I was sort of thinking about, you know, how do I talk to him what was interesting about that whole scenario is the week after the concert, when my student came for his next lesson, he told me how much he very much enjoyed the concert. And, and he's not a, he's not a chat, chatty type of student. And I remember talking to him about it, and it was really for the first time when I talked openly, very openly and honestly, uh, one-on-one with a person about thinking of mental health as a health issue. I was talking to my student about it in a very, very objective way. And I was, we were talking about mental health or the issues I've had, just as if I was to tell a child that I had a heart condition or I had cancer or that kind of thing. And I've talked about how 
you know, in an objective way, how this has been a challenging thing in my life, but I've gone to medical professionals to get help and now I'm doing better. And he nodded and, and was very calmly, you know, receiving that. And I thought to myself, this is so invigorating and enlightening because if you can talk to a child about this, that, and they grow up thinking that, that mental, um, having a mental health issue is not something that you should be ashamed of or that you should hide or that you are, you are not a, a great person. That this is something like if I fall off my bike and I go to the hospital and get a cast, this is a similar type of situation. And, and I thought to myself, my gosh, he, this 10-year-old boy has given me this other building block of thinking that I'm, I'm going to be okay. And anybody else who's going to deal with this is also going to be okay. And, and side note, the, the student is still my student, this, this student we're talking about. And we have this wonderful relationship and he's advancing. He's so super talented. And so obviously it didn't affect my relationship with him or his family. In fact, it probably strengthened it that I, I showed my vulnerability in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me um, about, you know, all of those, especially at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement, we see time and time again examples of where children aren't the ones that discriminate. You know, children don't have the judgments and the learned behaviours that we might have. And I think that opening up in the way you did is almost just adding to that whole, it just, just proves that whole truth that... Children are going to respect the person that you are if you portray yourself to them in a respectful way as well. You're absolutely right. I read a book recently by the Dalai Lama, and he basically very bluntly stated, nobody's born a racist. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, No one is born a racist. No one is born with sort of preconceived notions. That's why we as adults have so much to learn from children, especially younger children, because... Um, they, they look at the world quite objectively and, and uh, in almost this matter-of-fact, nonchalant type of way. And uh, we, have to, we have to keep adopting that and not worrying about what people think of us. And that's, very, that's obviously a lot easier said than done. My big dream in life is to visit schools, you know, and visit universities. And I've been fortunate to give talks on this topic to, to some institutions, but I, I really want to go deep in and I think sort of try to get every school of music um, to have a very important component of what students are offered and even specific programs that's part of the curriculum as part of attaining your degree has to be working on these aspects, you know, because that didn't exist when I was in school. I was in university studying music in the 90s, and th these things just did not exist. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that because we're talking about it so much and there's more emphasis on this within our society, I hope that we start to make these changes. Yeah, I mean, even in the past four years, for me, um, since I started suffering, I feel like the conversation has just grown and grown. And there are things yeah. that exist now that didn't exist when I started. And I mean, that was only four years ago. And it's just amazing the change that's happening. But thank you. This is great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that yeah. because we definitely need to to keep hearing that, you know. And now I hope that 
uh, some of the, the leaders within the classical music community, they are the ones who start talking about this more. So, you know, as we're talking now, I mean, the world is entrenched with COVID and because people are more isolated now, I'm just concerned that maybe these types of things will not be discussed as much or maybe because now even life as a musician is even more scarce because of this people not talking about their issues more or do they have the resources available i think this is very very important we have to look out for this because once the pandemic lifts who knows when it will be but when it lifts and we can sort of return to this type of thing will people be in a position to be able to go back to activities they love and my fear is that some permanent damage won't be done where it might be very difficult for them. So I think now more than ever, we have to make sure that we emphasize this. I agree. I'm sad to say I won't be surprised if there are more people who come forward saying that they're starting to suffer with mental health problems or whatever in our industry after this um, pandemic, because, you know, it's just the ultimate instability, isn't it? I mean, what is it? 80% of musicians are freelancing and Obviously, that doesn't exist at the moment, so it's going to have a knock-on effect. And I think we have to be real and honest about that now and say that you aren't alone, you people are not alone, and if people start discovering they are experiencing symptoms, whatever they might be, that they have the faith to seek help. Absolutely. That's that's the big thing that um, we always talk about, ending the, uh, the stigma around mental health. Well... That's 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 the number one stigma. Admitting you have a mental health issue is still for many, many people is an, a thing that somehow uh, a statement of their character yes. rather than a genuine medical condition that can be treated and managed. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think we still as much as I've been talking about it very openly these last few years, I still come across people that that I know for a fact are either think that way about others who are going through it or who are suffering about it and they're they've bought into that that stigma, you know. So we have there's still a lot of work we have to do about that for sure. I've been listening this morning to the wonderful album you have on your Spotify which is called You Haven't Been, which are piano pieces that you wrote about your depression. And I was just wondering what the composition process was like for that album. And um, I was just struck with how hopeful so many of the pieces were to me. They, They felt, you know, some of them felt very sad, but some of them felt extremely hopeful. And Uh, If you could explain the composition process, whether you wrote it whilst you were going through your depression or whether it was a sort of reflection on the depressive episodes or if you could just explain a bit more about it. Well, it's it's definitely not so, um, you know, the clear cut. Oh, um, I was going through depression. I all of a sudden felt better. And so now I'm going to write a piece about it. You know, it's like. To this day, I still have good days and I have bad days, right? Um, thankfully, much much fewer bad days than there once was. Uh, but I can definitely still go through that. And that was no different than writing many of those, composing many of those pieces. Um, some of those pieces were definitely composed um, when I was in a state of depression. 
Um, very few, actually. Um, remarkably, the interesting thing about, for me at least, I don't know about others, but the interesting thing about m- me um, being depressed is that I really don't feel like doing music. By the way, here's another stigma. That, and we look at this in famous composers and things like that. You know, you listen to Chopin. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's so melancholy and sad and blue. He must have been so sad when he was writing it. Well, how do we know that? We've just created this story to sort of romanticize, you know, uh, depression that he might have went through. For me, I know that I can't do it because, you know what, as I said before, I feel empty. I don't feel like doing anything. Exactly. So it's not like I, I feel... Because I'm depressed, now I feel inspired and I'm going to go and I'm going to be creative and I'm going to compose, you know, and it's like I'm going to I'm going to bring out all this incredible <laughs> melancholy music. No, that's that's the there we go. That's that's what I was talking about before that the stigma around it as part of it's almost like a choice that I've made to be depressed. So then I can be inspired. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this is all, you know, bull, you know, to pardon my language. So a lot of those pieces it was more definitely to answer your question it was more of a reflection of of being in a state and looking back on it and and that was a very therapeutic thing and they were actually very easy pieces to compose they're not actually very difficult to play they very simply simply state uh feelings uh through the sound of the piano reflections of how i felt in those particular times and that's why whenever I get an opportunity to perform those pieces live it's sort of like an extension of that creative process when I was composing the pieces because it's just it's like one step further a, a more of a more of a reflection to play them and to talk about the pieces and what inspired the, the particular themes of the specific pieces so but remarkably it was very therapeutic um and I was worried when when I was writing it, and once the whole collection was done, I remember um, talking to my um, to my wife, who's also my manager, thinking, "Okay, how are we going to share this music? And and am I taking a risk here by putting out an album about being in a, a state of depression? You know, and what I was most worried about wasn't just I'm not so much worried about what people would perceive of me or the music. I was more concerned about would I be making people depressed? So we actually did a lot of research online um, from many mental health studies talking about does music on melancholy, sad, or depressing themes make people more sad when they listen to it. And everything that we we read, thankfully, told us, no, it's actually the opposite. That there, there, so I finally, I finally figured it out after all these years. Why is Chopin so darn popular? Well, there you go. You know, it's like even though I mean, so much, so much of his music just conveys this, this sadness or sati. I mean, um, you know, so many uh, wonderful composers we love to listen to, and that people who don't don't even know much about classical music, they're just drawn to that music, that repertoire, right? And it makes sense because there's something welcoming, comfortable, soothing, um, that ironically can help bring people out of it. Like anything I compose, I'm very, I, I take a very artistic approach to my practice. And that is I only compose and will put out there what 
music that moves me or that is a reflection of me. That's a very strong thing, whatever I compose. And, um, but that obviously was taking that to a whole other level and to see the reaction has been quite amazing. So I'm happy that I, I got over the inhibition of, of that and, uh, and it's gone, gone for, further with it, so. I kind of want to turn now to talk about your work as an activist in the arts because it feels very frequently like being sort of quote-unquote outspoken about issues around mental health or climate change and human rights it's not best practice within our profession and I've even had you know a few friends who say um, I'm scared to write my opinions on Twitter or to retweet something I care about because it'll look unprofessional or it'll look like I'm you know, I'm not centrist enough. I'm not, I don't fit the mould of being a classical musician enough. And I just thought I'd like your, to hear your thoughts about why you think it's important for musicians to speak out about these issues. Oh, gosh, there's so much I could say on this. Um, first thing is, OK, you know how a big thing in our classical music world is uh, are we still relevant? That is a big talking point, right? Um, how can a, a an art form based on traditional um, white uh, European uh, traditions still be relevant in a world that we live in? And and probably you and many many people listening to this podcast probably feel yes we are still relevant right <laughs> after all that's why we're participating in this and this is why we do it so we do feel a relevance so if if we do feel a relevance though then we have to relate to the world we live in i mean uh, it's it's a no brainer so i was cringing when you were telling me about your friend or or somebody your colleague you know who is like i don't want to post anything on Twitter that I believe in and I was just like shuddering it's like but you're an you're an artist mm. you you have things to say right um as artists we are we are wired to say something to get on a stage or a platform or an album and to share and for me personally I feel that it's just an extension of that I my music is is my number one way I share who I am as an individual and what I believe in. And, and using then platforms like social media to, to share that even further or to uh, supplement that is, is just a natural extension of who I am. So I'm fearful, may, maybe being a bit bold here, but I would actually question the artistry of somebody who doesn't feel that they can speak out of certain things. Because then I would question, well, what are you trying to say in your own performance? Because for me, in the human brain, I feel it's all interconnected. Whether you're using a, a musical instrument, your singing voice, a tweet, um, uh, an album, a live concert, for me, it's all the same. We have been placed on this planet as musicians to to share and communicate that's what music is it's a form of communication so i do respect some people who don't feel like it's they don't feel comfortable perhaps they like using their instrument only to say something 
because they don't feel comfortable with a, you know, a Twitter post or, uh, or a blog or something. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. I do respect that, but at least then use your music to say something, you know, um, use program notes. If you don't want to talk in between, in between the pieces of your concert and you only want to say something relevant and, and important to make this world a better place, then say it through the sound of your instrument and the, the repertoire you pick, who wrote the repertoire, you know, mm -hmm. do you have proper representation, you know, and I'm a person, you might think, oh, I'm a, I'm a white male uh, of European descent, you know what I mean, uh, from uh, my, my family comes from the hotbed of classical music uh, tradition and history. Um, you know, I have, I have nothing to lose. In fact, I want more diverse voices to be, uh, to be heard, uh, because that means my art form will be, I can collaborate and share more openly and I will reach more. We're all going to benefit from being a more inclusive world, you know? And so that's, what's always driven me other than injustices. Yeah, it can it can feel like the arts industries as a whole, it can be very difficult to remain environmentally conscious because so many orchestras and projects look for funding in places that sort of aren't in line with artist values, whether that be from a bank or from an oil company or something. There are a lot of examples of orchestras that look to these sources of funding. Um, and I think it was on the Music Plus podcast, you spoke to Chris Gunnis about a concert tour you did in which you only took public modes of transport and you only took um, environmentally friendly sponsors. And I was just wondering what your experience of this was and whether you had any advice for musicians looking to fund their projects in an ethical way. Well, it's, it was a lot harder then uh, when I did that. Uh, we're talking about, I did a big concert tour called the Green Keys Tour back in 2010 and 2011, where I toured all of Canada and most of the United States over one year, just as you said, using public modes of transportation and, um, and offering concerts, uh, talking about climate change and, and performing music on the theme. And I remember in organizing that endeavor, um, the number one thing was to find sponsorship and find sponsorship that practiced environmentally sustainable um, activities. I have to say um, that I was very successful um, in that respect, finding companies in, a, in, the, in that there are a lot of companies out there and I think as musicians, one of the hardest things that we have to do is ask for help. And mm -hmm. sometimes when I'm, I feel down and in a bad mood, I call it begging. Oh, I have to beg today, you know, and, and, but just asking for help in a mutual agreeable where a situation where they're helping you financially. And, and meanwhile, they're getting some something out of it with exposure of what you're doing is it's a mutually agreeable thing. So I was able to find many, many sponsors uh, in both nationally and locally that were uh, from businesses that were practicing uh, environmental practices. And we used it as a platform to to showcase their work and what they're doing and organizations in each community and it really worked out and I was able to avoid, I didn't have to go to any 
places that, you know, where I, you know, we say, I guess, call it selling out. I didn't have to sell out or go against my values. And I think it's easier today because more and more companies are doing this. And I think it's really amazing that, yes, a lot of, you know, in the past, many traditional cultural and musical institutions and organizations have taken, sorry, quote unquote, taken money from the devil, as I like to say. And thankfully, a lot of organizations now have standards in place where they're not doing that. And furthermore, some who have taken it, perhaps in exchange for, say, naming a concert hall, that's starting to reverse. And and they're like taking the name away. And I'm like, so like, this is amazing. This is mm-hmm. awesome. When I first started off as an environmentalist, you know, honestly, it was a long road and i thought there's no hope you know these the uh, these organizations are so bound by money from big oil or um or some coal company or some financial institution that's heavily into funding unsustainable um you know industries um that there's just no way and even though even though that still exists we still have a work, a lot of work to do to call out various cultural organizations and holding them to a higher standard that this is not acceptable. Um, just like we need to keep holding them account to, you know, making sure their organizations are inclusive uh, based on gender and on, on racial, on race as well. For me, uh, the environmental thing is, is for sure. What about orchestras that tour? You know, that's starting to become a thing. You know, it was always very prestigious. Like here in Toronto, you know, we would have the 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 London Symphony come or the uh, the Royal Concertgebouw or various orchestras from Europe that come on tours. And it's like, with all due respect, is, you know, and we would celebrate this as a, as a great thing. But now I'm starting to find we're having this conversation, I think, especially because of COVID, now that nothing is happening. And we look outside and like, um, scientists have told us that air pollution is down significantly since we stopped flying in, uh, everywhere because of the shutdown of the pandemic. And it's just like, you see, this is a world we can live in and we don't need to have, you know, these types of outdated, archaic models of the way we as musicians do our career in order to have success. Mm. That's really fascinating to hear about um, your experience with that, because you know, it feels quite often as if we are too scared to ask for alternative methods of funding. And maybe it can feel quite easy to look to someone or look to a company that's funded people before. So, you know, that they'll say yes or, or whatever. Um, but I was just wondering if we could finish with you um, sharing sort of something you might say to your 21, 22-year-old self in college or university? And if you have a piece, biggest piece of advice for somebody struggling at that kind of age? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I think just thinking about what I was like at that age, for me, everything when I was in my last years of university, Everything was all just about the goal, about gaining a certain level of notoriety, for lack of a better word, and also to make money. So it was like, how as a professional musician am I going to get people to notice me and and make and I'm going to make money at the same time? And that's all that mattered to me at that age. And 
you know, when you're starting off, of course, you, you, it's easy to be in this sort of desperate state. But let me tell you something. The, now, what have I, I've learned? Interesting, the most successful I've ever been in my career has definitely been in the last five years or so. I don't think it's any, it's not a coincidence that because I have stopped thinking about that's the only important thing. Now, ironically, this is where I've actually started to get more success. Why? Because I've released pressure off my body, both mentally and physically, emotionally. And because I am, I'm able to function better. I'm able to be more productive. I'm able to compose more. I'm able to um, compose and put on performances that are more genuine. I think an, an audience who knows nothing about music can still sense, have a sixth sense when they're looking at a musician and create this emotional connection watching or listening to music saying, wow, there is something that is attracting me to this performer. And the performer, it works really hard to eliminate all that baggage is doing something purely from their heart because they're really motivated, not just by money or success or fame, but because they're actually giving something from themselves expressively that they're willing to share with another human being, that that comes off genuinely. And ironically, all the stuff they care about of money and success and notoriety and fame, that will come because of that. But you actually have to get rid of all of that if you're going to make that happen. And that's what I would have told that person. Now, in my defense, would would 21-year-old Frank have taken 46-year-old Frank seriously when he told him that? I'm not sure. But I would have definitely told him that nonetheless, saying, hey, here's where I'm at right now. You believe it. And thinking back to that time, I don't remember anybody ever talking to me that way. And, and I think that was because the institutions that I was part of were, were really, unfortunately, overemphasizing this very competitive nature that our, our classical music community is just steeped in. And we have to eliminate this if people are going to be successful and, and happy and healthy. So, Well, thank you so much for sharing um, your incredible story and your vulnerability and wisdom and I'm sure so many people will resonate with everything you've said and it's just such a relief to find someone that's open to talking and thank you for being the first guest because I was there was a, a moment where I worried that nobody would say yes so <laughs> the fact that you've said yes and you've just given us so much to think about is is wonderful and I'm very grateful to you so thank you. Hattie it's been my pleasure and I hope that what you started just takes off and that what we started here today just cre- continues to open up a conversation. So it's my, my pleasure to join you. Thank you. Just before you go, I want to say a huge thank you for listening and also thank you to Frank for the amazing interview, which I enjoyed so much. If you want to find out more about Frank, his website is frankhorvat.com and he's on Twitter at Frank Horvat as well and also has his music on Spotify and Apple Music if you want to check it out. So I guess I'll see you next week. Thank you all so much for listening.